Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Hey, you know what's really cool? What's really cool is the degree to which philosophy is exploding across the planet as we speak, like tiny little airstrikes of illumination across the entire world, lighting it up like a reverse fireworks show of human enlightenment. It's fantastic. Just last night, this is why I'm talking about it today, just last night we blew past half a million subscribers to this very YouTube channel. That is astounding. So we're talking in the last 28 days, we did 5.9 million video views. 5.9 million video views. Podcast downloads, you know, for those of you watching this, uh, there's a whole podcast uh, as well. Uh, you, you can get that at fdrpodcasts.com. The podcast were 5.7 million downloads. Now, combine those together, we're talking 11.6 million views in about a month of philosophy. To put that in context, the American Music Awards drew, what was that number? Uh, oh, yes, 11.6 million viewers. So basically, we did the same numbers in a month that the American Music Awards did. And that is pretty cool. The amount of content I'm cranking out is nothing short of Herculean, I dare say. Uh, just in October, we did 43 videos and 44 podcasts. That's quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, there's some I've done, which I haven't even released, like my almost three-hour introduction to the rise of Nazism, which I think you will love when it comes out. Some very, very powerful stuff. So basically, this show, Free Domain Radio, has a bigger profile, a bigger audience than many of the mainstream media outlets, at least on the web. And and we have greater views and, and credibility, which I consider a significant plus. And we also know, through the grapevine, that some very important people are watching this show, and it has changed their minds on some very fundamental issues. So it's not just you who's being enlightened uh, and growing strong in reason and evidence, but it is also some of the movers and shakers in the world whose minds are being blown wide open to all the facts that um, existing culture conspires to keep from them. And we're only going to get bigger from here. I consider this to be the first step. We are just getting started in what we can do to bring the world reason and evidence and kindness and virtue and courage and all of the great things that make civilization strong and sustainable. And um, this is where you come in. I want to be very clear about this. You know, people give to their churches, they give to their charities, they give to their political candidates, you know, lunatics on the left get hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, think tanks have their own intellectual pets. And um, I'm not uh, doing any of that. I'm not taking donations from big concentrated interests. I'm not taking any donations from think tanks. I am free to say what I need to say, what civilization needs to hear. I am free to enlighten the world because of you, because of your generosity, your support of the show, and for no other reason. You know, for years, I have uh, had people say to me, Steph, you think you're a smart entrepreneur. You think you know what you're doing. You don't know anything because you should really just be taking ads. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. No, absolutely not. And this was a tough decision. I gave up a lot of income in refusing ads. But um, as it turns out in this, as in so many other areas, the enlightened people are correct because a lot of people decided to go the route of taking ads and then their controversial videos and... <laughs> I have made a few. <laughs> Their controversial videos get demonetized. And 
their business model completely collapses and they're thrown into a panic and then they have to try and backfill by begging for money when they're running out of uh, income to pay their bills and uh, it's not a pretty picture. And um, other people who are dependent on ads have to be careful about what they think and what they say, uh, the titles of their videos, the subjects of their videos because they don't want to trigger the tripwire of demonetization. I don't have any of those worries. I can say what is important. I can back it up with facts. I can have on the controversial experts. I can do the amazing interviews because you support the show rather than advertisers. And uh, it leaves me free. Uh, It's tough to knock me out because there's no concentrated source of income. It's dispersed. All the kind of stuff I've talked about as a virtue, I'm conforming with because of your generosity. That is why I'm able to do what I'm doing. And I thank you from the very bottom of my heart for that kindness, I dare say, The families who are more peaceful, the people who are more rational, the relationships that are sustained and improved, the courage that people have found to stand up to immorality uh, in their own lives. All those people thank you as well. But we are at stage one. I think we're getting close to stage two. For that, I need your support to survive in this environment, to do the radical things that I'm doing, to bringing the extraordinary truths that I'm bringing to the world. I need your support to survive, to flourish, because here's what you need to do. If you value what I'm doing, and we know we want to do the honorable thing in life, we want to exchange value for value. And I've got decades and decades of experience uh, in, in thinking, in reasoning, in researching, in communicating to the world in a way that people find enormously valuable and compelling You need to exchange value for value. So here's what you need to do to get us to stage two, to get us what we're going to do in the future, to get us there, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Please, please, you know you need to do the right thing. These videos aren't free. My time is not free. My expenses are not free. The technical equipment is not free. The research is not free. We need your support. I need your support to do the next thing, to get to the next thing, to grow this show, to have even greater influences on on art, on culture, on politics, on thinking, on families, on parents who will not hit their children because of this show and the information that it contains. With resources, with enough resources, there's literally nothing I cannot do. For us to save the world together, you need to do the right thing. Please, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate. Sign up for a subscription. Give me a one-time thing. You don't need a PayPal account. You can give a Bitcoin. Anything that you can spare, anything that you can provide will enormously empower and illuminate what it is that I'm able to do next. Now, if you have donated to the show in the past, Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving me the resources to call down these lightning strikes of enlightenment, causing the hearts and minds of people across the world to glow with new knowledge and new courage and new resolution to do good in the world. I really, really appreciate that more than I can ever, ever express. Thank you so much. Maybe, just maybe it's time to donate again. I leave that to your conscience and your integrity and your honor to decide. If you've not donated to this show before, you know you need to do the right thing. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Give me the resources to do what I need to do, to do what the world needs me to do, to do what the future needs me to do. Give me the resources to do it, and you will be absolutely amazed at what comes next, I promise you. And for everyone over the years who has loved the show, who has supported the show, who has invested in this show, who has who have taken the bullets socially for bringing reason and evidence to those around you. Thank you so much. I am truly humbled by your kindness, by your courage, by your generosity. And I just want to tell you, I love you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do what needs to be done. 
and let's do it now. Do you ever get the thought or the worry or the concern, the fear, the terror that perhaps virtue is a great liability in the world, that being good in your mind and heart is being disadvantaged in society as it stands? Well, you're not alone in that. This first caller had that very question, and we talked about it in great depth and great detail. I think it'd be very, very helpful. The second caller is calling in from the socialist 19th layer of hell known as Venezuela and wanted to send a warning up to those of us in the West about the dangers of socialism and political power and corruption and everywhere that it leads. The third caller wanted to know about fractional reserve banking, central banking, and so on, and the pluses and minuses that can occur. And uh, I love geeking out on the banking stuff. So we had a really, really great conversation about the history of banking and what fractional reserve means and whether it's good or bad. And uh, it's really, really important to understand this stuff, both for what's going wrong now and what can go right in the uh, future. And the fourth was an ex-Marine who was calling in concerned that there was a concerted effort to destroy Western civilization, the Western way of life, and Western people. And we had, uh, I guess he had some speculation as to who it might be. And my response may surprise you. I think it will. And the fifth one, you know, now that we're in our mid-3500s for shows, I thought, hey, why not define philosophy? You know, seems a bit like the tail wagging the dog. I guess I kind of did it before, but we had a very good discussion about what philosophy is and uh, how it can best be applied. All right. Well, up first today, we have Paul. Paul wrote in and said, how does an individual encourage children or anyone to lead a virtuous existence when living with virtues is often a very real handicap in our present society? I personally see the value of trying to lead such a positive life, but convincing most people of this is extremely difficult. Most people seem to only want to live a life of ease and comfort, which society incessantly tells them to have at any cost. That's from Paul. Hey, Paul, how are you doing tonight? Oh, great. I'm well, thank you. And do you have kids? I do not. I do not. Right. I have uh, nieces and nephews. Right. No, that's a great line from, what's that old Ben Affleck and Sandra Bullock movie, Forces of Nature? Do you have any kids? No, but I, I see them all over. <laughs> No, I, I do. don't know why yeah, that line is I funny, but it is. Um, well, I think that virtue is akin to a knowledge of language and um, the way that we teach children language is really interesting. And I was always curious about this before I became a father. I mean, how do we learn and absorb language? And the same, really, I think could be said to be true of morality. How do we learn and absorb morality, um, rules for living, standards of behavior? Now, the fascinating thing about parenting is that you really don't teach your children much in the way of language. So when I'm reading to my daughter, every now and then, I'll sort of stop. You, you kind of have to guess what words they don't know. Because when I'm reading to her, there'll be some words where I'm like, um, I'll sort of stop to explain it. And she's like, Dad, I know what that is. Okay. <laughs> and, and other times, I'll sort of stop and explain. She's like, oh, thanks. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> but the interesting thing is that she gets words, I think, like most of us do, through context, through association, through the words before and afterwards, the intent. And it takes a couple of times. But there's this weird osmosis that occurs that you just pick up language by being exposed to it. And I, I, the way that that works with the primary language, I guess we've all experienced, 
how it works picking up a second language. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I just hung around and people who spoke Turkish, if I'd end up speaking Turkish or whatever. But um, when it comes to morals, to virtues, well, you you live them. You, you display them, right? I mean, one of the most important virtues is keeping your commitments. And so with a child, so you you keep your commitments to the child and uh, uh, learning to apologize. Um, and, you know, my daughter is, is very assertive around other kids. And I'm always one for like, oh, you know, you want to come play with us? She's like, no, I want to play with just with my dad or whatever. You know, sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's the other. But she's very assertive about it. And I, I think that's great. It's a very good, I think she's re- reasonable about it and nice about it, but very, very firm. And that's a good habit, and there's things that I can learn from her that way, uh, just as I sort of in, intend to teach her things. So, you know, keep your commitments, keep your promises, uh, be generous, and model the behavior that you want your children to exhibit in how you interact with them. And if that is there, like if the empiricism of what you say and do is there, then conceptualizing it later is a lot easier. It's a lot easier. Whereas if the empirical examples of your own behavior are not there, then it does you very little good. In fact, it will probably do you harm to try and conceptualize it later. In other words, if I don't keep my word to my daughter, and then I say to her later, well, it's important to keep your word, well, first thing she's going to come back is say, well, you know, let me list it 20 times. You didn't keep your word because, you know, kids are vices of aggrieved memory <laughs> if, if, you, uh, if you do them wrong or... or are not consistent. So uh, you you just you model the behavior, and then you it's the same. Like, how do they learn what a chair is? Well, they see a whole bunch of chairs, and then they conceptualize it from there. And um, how do they know what truth is? Well, they hear a whole bunch of truth, hopefully spoken to them, and then they conceptualize it from there. It's the same thing with ethics. If they have the empirical example of ethical behavior on the parts of parents towards the children, then they will conceptualize it easily. And consistency of behavior won't be a threat to any family structure because it's been modeled before it has been defined. And when we think about things that we learn, it's, it, we always see a bunch of examples and then we conceptualize it from there. Concepts are imperfectly derived from instances, as I have said, I think in my second podcast many, many years ago, Understanding Concepts. And so that's, I think that's how you inculcate Right, that sounds sinister. <laughs> sounds like indoctrinate, but it's not. It's how you foster uh, moral behavior in children, and uh, it's it's easy. My daughter is a very good person, and um, obviously that's partly her, and and partly me, and partly her mom, and partly the people she's around. Now, as far as why should people be moral? Well, that's. A trickier question. I haven't had to um, deal with that one yet. Like, I haven't had my daughter come up to me and say, Dad, you know, it'd be really great if I could be in with the cool kids and do bad things. <laughs> maybe it'll happen someday. I'm probably, I don't think it will, but maybe it will. So, convincing now. So, that's my sort of suggestion. And and the virtues, you know, courage and, and honesty and... Uh, um, decency and um, honor, uh, you know, the things that are useful things to have uh, in life. 
so I, I don't want to encourage her to live a virtuous life. I just want her to live a virtuous life, and I want to have that occur because I model it, and then she will find it easier to, even easier to model it for her kids and all that kind of good stuff. Does that does that make sense? It does. It does. But then uh, once she has exposure to the wider world, you have a, a conflict there. Well, I, I don't know that I will. And this doesn't mean that no one is ever tempted or, or anything like that. But, but I don't know that I will. So let's say that uh, we're in a mall and she hears Turkish being spoken. Well, she won't really understand the language. Maybe one day she'll have a desire to learn it. I don't know. But it won't be something like, wow, I really, really got to speak in that language no matter what. I mean, it just won't be the language that she speaks. So when she's around people who are doing bad things or suggesting bad things or whatever, then um, I don't think she'll be particularly tempted by it. And, uh, you know, I've certainly, I've shared, you know, just as I do on this show, some stories of people who I think made bad choices and what happened to them. So I just don't think it's going to be very tempting for her uh, to, well, to, to do, go that way. I thank you for your, for your, your example of using your daughter. Um, but I'm thinking more about, I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, uh, just in terms of, of when people... Uh, start socializing more with, with with the wider world of school, and you know they come home with things that you you haven't taught them. Um, maybe a, a teacher you mean like government schools, or um, maybe when someone an adult is watching the news, you know, seeing a, a a world leader do something that's not uh, good, and you say, "Well, this person did that," and you know, or if I met if, I, if, if uh, a young person is at work, they're, they're behaving a certain way, and then their their mother, their older mother or father says, "Why are you doing that?" And, and the, the younger person might say, "Well, this is how this is what I have to do to to get ahead." Yeah, but I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, human beings are the greatest environmental toxin in the world. I mean, they can be wonderful, but uh, a lot of time, they're just you know bipedal bags of douchebaggery. So, as a parent, it's it's your job to make sure that your children are not in, exposed to any environmental toxins. You keep them away from Hillary Clinton campaign commercials. Like, all, all the environmental toxins, and, and human beings are, in some ways, the most dangerous environmental toxin. You wouldn't give your kid a pile of asbestos to play with, and you would not permit your child to be around... Uh, people who are dysfunctional or broken or damaged or dangerous or abusive or dissociated or messed up in any of the six billion ways it seems that human beings can be messed up. So um, it's your job. It, you know, you, you put a fence around your yard if there's a road and you put a fence around your social circle uh, to keep out dysfunctional people. Yes, I, I agree with what you're saying, but um, the reality of what, I'm, what I've seen, uh, whether it's through my experience or through other people's experience, the world in general, I, I don't see that... Well, no, but we're not talking about the world in general. We're talking about people who are interested in philosophy. I'm sorry to sound impatient, but you're saying, like, this stuff just happens? No, it doesn't just happen. I mean, you, you make the choice. You make the choice about what sort of people your children are going to be exposed to, right? Sure. And it's your job. Right. No, no, I'm not... I guess I'm more... I guess I, I'm... 
I guess I'm, I'm extending it in my mind anyway, towards towards uh, convincing people in general. I don't I don't understand. H- how do you convince people to be good? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Well, I mean, and it's a great question, and there's two ways in which people generally want to be good. Now, we're not talking about um, people who are have an innate drive or desire for consistency or to be good and who will pursue it regardless of positive and negative feedback. But there are sort of two ways in which people generally approach the question of virtue. Number one is they like to see the example of virtue in their lives, right? So they like to see the example of somebody who's living a good life and doing right and hopefully being happy in the pursuit of of all of that stuff, and they like to see it. And this is, you know, it's marketing 101, and that makes it sound cheap, but I don't mean it that way, which is that uh, if you want to sell people a diet, you don't show the picture of the fat guy, you or maybe you show the before, but you show the picture of a curvaceous, skinny person, or if you want to, you know, you could be over 40 and have ripped abs. Well, you, you don't want to show Michael Moore, who his abs seem to have been ripped out of him. But um, you, you show the guy with the six-pack or whatever. So, so they need to, people need to see virtue in action in their lives. But, of course, the reality is that some people will react positively to virtue. But I think a significant proportion of people will react with hostility to virtue. I mean, clearly, right? I mean, I remember um, hanging out with two women. I met, um, I, I, when I was younger, I had a month off from working as gold panning, and I got a, um, a pass to fly anywhere in Ontario for a month. And with a friend, I went on a tour of like Montreal, Quebec City. Um, I think we even went to Thunder Oh, I was, I was working in Thunder Bay. Um, we went to a bunch of different cities and uh, places. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. And when I was in Quebec City, I met a woman. And uh, we never really dated, but we were friends and we hung out and all that. And I was out with her one night in my early 20s. And um, we were sitting in a cab on our way to a disco. And a woman walked down looking amazing physically, right? You know, long, tall, lean, dressed to the nines and so on, made up perfectly. And you know, the women I was with were certainly very attractive, but uh, not quite that. And these these two women looked at each other immediately and said, bitch. Because I guess they had assessed her attractiveness relative to their attractiveness. She'd come out ahead, and they were reacting with some negativity, let's say. And it was not a joke. Joke is kind of serious. And so when people are around people who are better than them, some people take it as an inspiration, and some people take it resentfully, right? So if a fat guy's around a guy who's lean, he may view that as an inspiration and ask him for advice, or he may just get resentful and hostile and all this kind of stuff. So when you let the full flag of your virtue flow, you know, some people will salute and some people will try and tear it down and drive a pickup over it. That's just the way it goes. But you can, of course, choose those the people who salute in your personal life. So you can inspire them that way. Uh, they see you being happy and being good, and they want to be happy. And if good's how you have to do it, I guess they maybe regretfully say then they'll do it. But the other way that people uh, are, are good is because they want a particular benefit out of it. Right? Do, do we pursue virtue 
for the thing in itself, or do we pursue virtue for some positive benefit we're going to get out of it? Well, of course, Immanuel Kant and, and other people would say, well, no, you can't have any selfish pleasure in virtue. The moment you take pleasure in virtue, it's no longer virtuous. The moment you give someone $10 because you want to feel good about giving them $10, then it's no longer a generous action. You're just using that person to feel good about yourself. It's it's a crappy argument, um, uh, which is not an argument. I know <laughs> that's not crappy. It's not an argument. But um, for for good, right? Why do guys want six-packs? Well, they want to take off their shirt and have women ooh and have men go, aw, <laughs> right? Or oh, whatever, right? And why do men want money? So they can buy things to impress other people. And, you know, why do women want to look good so that guys will buy them drinks and make them feel special? And, I mean, people are in pursuit of a, a positive. And so if... Reason equals virtue equals happiness, as the old domino theory goes, then we are good so that we can be happy. But like dieting, like exercise, it doesn't always feel good, but it generally has a good end as a whole. Uh, or it's not really an end, but it's a good it's a process that leads to good things, you know, exercise and all that. You don't often don't enjoy it in the moment, but it leads to general good health and all that. So we have the example, which is inspiring, we have the positive results. And so far, nobody usually has a big problem. The big problem comes when I talk about the next part. Right? Human beings are motivated by carrots and by sticks. Like all animals, right? Right. If your dog does what you want, give him a treat. If the puppy pees on the carpet, you might swat its butt with a newspaper. I'm not saying you should, shouldn't. I don't have to train a dog, but carrot and the stick. And bad people, the moment you start talking about a stick, they get very angry, they get very upset, they get very hostile, because they, they don't want to have any negative consequences for being bad. And they don't want to be rejected by good people, because that makes them feel bad about themselves and brings up the inchoate rage of people who align to themselves for a living. And so the last one is, be good or be gone. It's as simple as that. Be good or be gone. Which brings us back to a first point, which is the environment that you allow your children to be exposed to. Mine, five, five little five-word mantra. Be good or be gone. And I'm willing to help if you want to be good. But you still got to be good or be gone. And that is... That is the stick, right? The carrot is you'll be happy and you'll have my approval and it's a good thing, right? People can be motivated by that if reason isn't enough. But the stick is be good or be gone. And um, if people enjoy my company or enjoy my presence and, and so on, or appreciate my approval, as I appreciate the approval of other people in my life and enjoy their presence, then uh, yeah, be good or be gone. And this is the part where people kind of freak out. Because beforehand, it's all like, oh, it's inspiring, and it's positive, and you'll be happy, right? Everybody's fine until the stick comes out. Be good or be gone. And um, if more people did that, then virtue would be a more positive thing to achieve because you wouldn't be ostracized by good people. But good people are afraid of ostracizing others because... Uh, that's considered to be a negative, uh, 
Um, people get angry, they get upset, they view, they, and they start using all of these moral words. And it's so funny, you know, when immoral people use moral words against good people. I mean, it's so pathetic. It's so obvious once you see it. You're dogmatic. You're rigid. You, uh, you're inflexible. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I just, I'm sorry if I have a spine, you jellyfish souls. Anyway, so so that's my sort of thought about it. I mean, people okay. should want to be good because it makes them feel good and it's a good thing to do and it makes them happy and feel loved. But, you know, sometimes we all need a little, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, what was it? Six years or seven years ago, I went to the doctor. The doctor said, hey, you're kind of overweight. Did I like it? No. Was he right? Sure was. Dropped 30 pounds, 35 pounds, I think, and have kept them off for now six or seven years. Because, you know, you just change everything you do in your life and you never go back. Right? So, And that's unusual. That's unusual. Like only 2% of people lose weight and keep it off. And um, it's rarer still if you're in your, I guess I'm 50 now, it's in your 40s. Uh, so your metabolism slowed down and all that. So, so yeah, you do. If you if you want to be my friend, you have to be good, or or you have to be gone. Sure. I, well, I see uh, uh, honestly, I, I see a difference between uh, between uh, what you're saying in your in your personal life, but also as opposed to what what happens in in say your work life, where let's say if you if, if money's the 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 goal, and perhaps not, not being so honest or uh, not being so ethical gets more money. That that's certainly a, a way to 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 motivate yourself. And the opposite is true, isn't it? If you're not perhaps looking the other way, or you're doing you're, you're cutting corners that might not be so ethical. Uh, you're making money, so. You, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it's it's the old offer of the devil, right? I mean, I'll give you stuff for your soul. I get that. I mean, of course, I understand that. I mean, and the answer take, is take is up. older than me, right? Like the answer is way older than me, which is don't do it. But that's that's related to your person's everyday existence, uh, being being one of one one in society, being considered uh, a successful person, whatever uh, success means. In society, so there's there's a strong uh... sure. And if if you're going to define success by by making money, then you can go and make money and not be a good person. I mean, you can make money and be a good person too. But um, no, if you if you if all you want the money, well, it's a great Annie Lennox song. Um, I won't sing it, but it goes something like, um, uh, "All the money in the world won't buy you peace of mind. You can have it all, but you won't." be satisfied and uh, it's true it's true like i i mentioned this before but um after a breakup of a long relationship in my 20s i uh went to live uh, as someone's roommate in a condo downtown and it had a squash court and a gym and it was a nice swimming pool and all that and i was down there in the pool one night alone and i was doing well in the business world and all that but um i thought uh well, what if what if I was rich enough to just have this pool in my house, like an indoor pool in my house, and I was alone in the indoor pool in my house? How sad would that be? How sad! There's a desperation. You have everybody knows. Everybody knows money doesn't buy you happiness, and that's funny because when you're poor, you think it will. Right? Old Beatles song. 
Buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if it'll make you feel all right. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. And I was like, oh, but wouldn't it just don't give away that diamond ring? <laughs> you can buy something useful with it. No, Candy. I, I, toys. I agree with you completely. I mean, I, I before I, I, I moved to Asia, I was in uh, social services. And I thought, this is a great place for me. I can help people and perhaps the good qualities that I that I have I can really put for, uh, put it towards my work and, and, and I'll move up but I didn't see that I saw um, money the profit of, of billing the, uh, the patients that I was working with and the way they the way they set up the billing that you, um, the, the original goal is to make patients these are meant very uh, severely mentally ill people become the goal was to make them as independent as possible but the way the billing was set up was you had to see them even though you didn't you didn't need to see them you need to see them less so that they become, eventually become more independent but because the billing was set up where you have to bill to make more money the people who would lie and say that they were with someone they would be the, the, the successful people yeah so that the the main, the main goal was not being met. The main goal being the greater independence of, of the person. So I thought it was very unethical, um, the encouragement that was, that I was being uh, kind of forced to, to do. So I said, this is, you know, I, I, this is, uh, it's not right. Right. So I am, I'm, I nice. moved to Thailand with my, my lovely wife. And we're living a very honest, simple, simple life. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, this is the last point that I want to make, because having been, I've been around some rich people, some really, really rich people. And um, honestly, I have not noticed them to be happier at all. It's very frustrating. When you're poor, you know, you're Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? When you're poor, you're hungry. I was hungry as a kid. And I knew rich people. I went to go visit my father in Africa, and, and we went over to some guy's house. It went on forever. I don't know, like 10 bedrooms. Like, it, 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 a sprawling mansion went on forever. I had, a, I had a friend. I was just saying this to my daughter the other day. I have a friend who had a uh, – his family moved into a big, rickety, old, cool house right downtown Toronto. I can't even imagine how much it would cost. And he had one of those – I love these rooms. They're underneath the roof, the sloping roofs, and they've got that little window jutting out. And it was so cozy in there. And he had like a futon on the floor, and great stereo. And I was like, ah, oh, man, that'd be the best. Yeah, pretty miserable life of it overall, though. And the last thing I mentioned is I was once in a business meeting. And this is one of these moments where I was like, the world is, is not what I thought. Where am I? What the hell is going on? Where have I ended up? I was in a business meeting. And one of the people around the boardroom table, uh, a man, was, was mocking another man. And he was mocking that the other man was so lonely that he had to buy a bride from Russia or somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And the other man got really offended and upset. And I was like, where am I? Who, who the hell am I with? What am I doing here with these people? 
I guess if you go to spirit cooking dinners, you may have the same feeling. At least I hope you do. Right. And he was a, he was a wealthy guy. A wealthy guy. So lonely. Had to buy a bride from overseas. And was tortured by it. Tortured by it. So, I mean, money, um, it's not like more money, more problems. And it's not like money is bad. and People can accumulate everything they want. It's not like all the poor people are good and all the rich people are bad. I mean, just, it's not. And the studies show this pretty clearly that it doesn't, it doesn't make you happier. I mean, therapy makes you happier than a race. And um, as long as you've got your basic needs met, more money isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. So you have to uh, be careful not to equate. Because when people say more money and, and it's driven by something other than need, uh, what they're talking about is status, that they want to look like a big swinging dick uh, to other people they want to show off and all that. And that obviously is pretty empty and doesn't work out for very long. And it's actually kind of a humiliating position. If you go to work to impress others, well, you're the one at work late, not them. I mean, they're free. They're off there playing baseball with their kids and you're slaving away over a squinty-eyed, irradiating computer, and you think, you ha- you think you're winning relative to them? You think you have high status relative to them? Good Lord. Some got to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to take a flight to Singapore. And meanwhile, they're sleeping in, and their kids jumping in their beds in the morning, but it's okay because your house is twice as big as theirs, so you're a better person. Anyway, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I appreciate the question. Hey, thank uh, you very I, much. It's, these are big, big, important questions, and I hope that uh, people find a value in the, in, the, in our conversation about it. So thanks a lot. And uh, who's next? All right. Well, up next, we have Lewis. Lewis wrote in and said, I'm a Venezuelan, and I'm amazed how similar big government politicians in the U.S. are to what is destroying my country. I've also noticed that so many people are so easily distracted by the mainstream media and refuse to take real matters into account, such as policies. Big government politicians always find common ground here, and people keep falling into a never-ending cycle of disappointment, but keep doing everything as before, guaranteeing that nothing changes. How would you fight with reason and evidence from the inside of a failed country in which not even alternative media have made people open their eyes to the reality that big government policies always end in corruption and failure? That's from Lewis. Oh, hey, Lewis. How you doing? Hi, How is life in Venezuela these days? Are you are you safe? Are you relatively secure? Well, it, that's I think the the worst point because uh, 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 the murder rates and the the the, the failure of uh, of security agencies to protect us is. It's terrible. It, 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 I I see between uh, among among my friends. I see uh, around two people who uh, per week uh, uh, told told uh, their friends in Facebook or or in their uh, social accounts how they they were they were robbed their cell phone around twice around twice per week. I, I read. Some story around that, and and I recently uh, lost a, a close friend. He was murdered by someone who was trying to to kidnap him, and he's he's a a grown up man. He he he's forty years old and and completely out of any kind of 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 activity 
in the in, in the uh, world of, of, of delinquency. Of, so it's someone that you you would never expect to 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 lose. I believe in, in almost any any country and and here it, 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 it's always a, a story that surrounding us. Someone who lost a a, a loved friend, a, a loved family a family member, or a friend, or that the the the, the that that's the the worst I think of all the the the, the topics is how the 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 murder rate per hundred thousand people is around the roof. But that's that's not the, the only one way. That's that's just that that's the one that that I'm most most sensible to. It's uh, uh, are you are you hearing? Yes, I'm. I'm fine. I thought you were still in the middle of your thought. Have you Have you finished your? Yeah, your I, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think. Well, I, I, I don't know how 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 else I I can I can stress that point that that it, it's 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 really it's 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 really not not safe, uh, and every every every. Week or or every or every day there is a story how someone uh, some tourist uh, was murdered or, or someone that that was going close uh, was close to leaving the country. Uh, uh, many people around around here in Venezuela have the goal of, of, of leaving uh, or uh, migrating to. Another country, and and there is always uh, uh, a story about about uh, uh, or a, or or a tourist or a or or or, or, or someone was in, in uh, uh, another victim of of the. the 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 failure of of any of any kind of of, of security uh, from the from the government agency from the police from, <laughs> that they are they are mostly here because uh, it's like uh, common knowledge that uh, among the the Police agencies, they they are they are also some of the people who who commit crime, and it's it's that's really really one of the worst topics. But that's well, that's not the only one. <laughs> um, Okay, well, I'm going to have to break in, and, and I'll just give you some thoughts about why I think people are unable to see it. And, you know, I'm sure you've noticed that these, these changes can happen very quickly. 
in a country. I mean, when it runs out of money, when it runs out of resources, these changes can happen very quickly. And it's it's terrifying. And a lot of people, of course, are not prepared for it because they've been lied to for so long by uh, everyone. And I think fundamentally, there used to be an aristocracy of intelligence in the world. And one of the problems with democracy is that politicians have a tough time telling voters how unbelievably stupid they are, how unbelievably short-sighted they are, how unbelievably greedy they are, how unbelievably irresponsible they are. And this doesn't mean in their personal life, they might be okay in their personal life, they might be responsible in their personal life, but we all know when it comes to the public purse, everybody's a piranha, when in fact everyone's the cow. (laughs) But um, it used to be that human pride was a sin. Now, I think sometimes religion has gone too far in beating back the concept of pride. But pride and vanity were sins, as they should be. Um, Pride, like genuine earned pride in your achievements, it's not a sin, obviously, but I'm talking about pride pride in things you haven't earned. You're pride of your country, your culture, right? You haven't earned these things. But vanity in particular. A vanity, of course, is little more than imagining you know things that you don't know. And vanity, an overestimation of one's own knowledge and wisdom, prevents the actual accumulation of knowledge and wisdom. Right? If you think you've achieved your ideal weight, you stop dieting. If you want to drive home, by the time you get home, well, you get out of your car and you stop driving. If you think you've arrived, you stop moving. And there used to be uh, the relationship between smart people and the masses, between smart people and the mob, has always been uneasy. Because the mob is dumb and vain. And this is a very very bad combination. They're dumb and they're vain. And so they have bad answers to problems, unprincipled answers in particular, emotional answers. They have bad answers to problems because they're dumb. But they think they're very smart and very wise. And that's a dangerous combination because their ego, their sense of self-worth, of self-value, is founded upon a delusion, a delusion of intelligence, a delusion of competence, a delusion of wisdom, a delusion of practicality. They think they're all these things. And reminding them that they're not smart, that they have bad ideas, bad solutions, they don't know what they're talking about. Reminding them of that can be very volatile, as Socrates found out 2,500 years ago when he was given an espresso shot of hemlock to the hereafter. Reminding people that they're dumb and have bad answers is a perilous business. Now, just in case you, hang on, just in case you misunderstand me, I'm dumb too in the vast majority of things in life. The vast majority of things in life. I don't know how to fix my car. I changed a tire once. I hope to never do it again. <laughs> right? I, I don't always know what the best thing is for me to eat. 
Uh, sometimes I feel like if I'm in a rush and a hurry, I'm working hard and I eat like a goat. Whatever I can scoop up from the carpet, <laughs> take it down. There, there's so many things that uh, I don't know. And I'm, I'm dumb about them. I don't know how things should be fixed. Should be, I mean, in so many areas. I'm just dumb, ignorant, uninformed. And, but I'm smart enough and I'm good enough because I'm good at some things. I know what I'm not good at because there's a contrast. But if you're not really good at anything and you, you get this, what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where you think you're good at something and you're not. And deep down, you kind of know that you're not good at it, but um, you don't want to be exposed because it's humiliating. And people who build their personality structures on vanity are exquisitely sensitive to and often enraged by the humiliation of meeting someone who has genuine knowledge as opposed to their pretend knowledge, their, dare I say it, their word salad, or salads, or salad bar, it may be. Now, the aristocracy of intelligence used to be very um, harsh, very sharp, in that if you were an idiot and you were talking out of turn, They'd say, shut up, idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, I grew up in that aristocracy of intelligence. Um, this was true in boarding school. This was true. It's true in England. Um, if you're putting on airs, if you're pretending to be something you're not, pretending to know something you don't, uh, people are merciless. Merciless. The pretense of knowledge is a very dangerous thing and needs to be punished. Yeah, socially and all that. And what has changed is, well, you know, government schools, uh, teachers who can't be fired, teachers who are terrible, and social promotion. One of the ways that you used to know you weren't smart is you would not be promoted to the next grade. You'd fail. And now, at least in many schools, uh, systems in the West, there's no such thing as failure. There's no such thing as failure. Everybody gets a grade. Everybody gets to move forward. You don't have to be particularly good. And so everyone just kind of bumps along like leaves on a stream going down towards wherever. And there's no feedback which says to people, you're dumb. Now, some of this comes out of political correctness and a desire to avoid racial IQ disparities and, and all that kind of stuff. But basically, having standards that are applicable to everyone, well, you'd end up with, I guess, uh, Asians doing better and you'd end up with blacks doing worse and all that kind of stuff. And so people don't want that. So they lowered all the standards. And so everybody passes and nobody fails. And so people genuinely grow to adulthood thinking that I, I graduated high school. Really? <laughs> Would you like to go back, say, 30 years and try and graduate that high school? Go look up some of the 19th century tests that were given out in uh, America in uh, grade schools and see how well you do. There has been a catastrophic decline in standards in education, and what that means is people think they're smart when they are just ridiculously dumb. And, um, they, I mean, there may be things that they're great at. You know, my, the, the guy who fixes my car is really great at fixing cars, and I respect his knowledge. That's why I give him money to fix my car. But I'm not good at fixing my car, and he's really bad at politics. He's really bad at economics. He's really bad at philosophy. He's just terrible at these things, which is fine. We all have to specialize. And knowledge of what is good for society, knowledge of philosophy, of political science, of economics, and so on, well, that is um, rare. It's very rare. You know, just 
go around to the average person on the street and ask them what fiat currency is. Well, they'll say, I don't know, what, you buy a European car with? I mean, what, they, well, they won't know. Maybe one person in 10,000 would know. But everybody wants to vote about how social resources should be allocated or divvied up or taxed or redistributed, but they don't know. They have no clue. They don't know a goddamn thing about anything. And I would never think of grab, grabbing a bunch of random people and all going over to my mechanic's garage and we all vote on how the car get fixed. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. Any more than I would go down with a bunch of friends to the doctor and we all get to vote on what needs to be done to fix whatever ails me. We defer to experts. But in democracy, the teachers lie to the students and pretend that they're learning something, and the politicians lie to the population and think that the, and pretend that the population knows something. You know, as I pointed out in a recent video, women are idiots when it comes to politics in general. And for those of you who are offended, <laughs> just go to the comments underneath that and count the number of women who say, oh my God, Steph, you're right. I tried to talk to my female friends about politics and they just, they don't know their ass from hole in the ground. And uh, why hasn't that changed? Why hasn't that changed? Why is it getting worse as women get more secure and economies advance more and women gain more equality? They end up knowing less about politics. Like Denmark has a greater gap in male-female knowledge about politics than Colombia. And why? Because nobody's saying to women, sorry, you're stupid about this stuff. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. In general. And, you know, maybe men aren't that much better, but they're significantly better than women. I mean, men aren't good relative to what I'd like to see with better education, but they're better than women. And so who, who is saying, who, who would say, sorry, ladies, you're dumb about this stuff, and you need to get better because you've got votes. That's the deal. You get the vote, start reading yourself some politics. Right? And I'm not talking the Huffington Post, like real politics. Read some John Locke. Read some oh, Rousseau. I don't care. Anyone who's going to get your thought processes going. Uh, pick up some Spencer. Pick up some Hume. Anybody. Can't. I don't care. Just get the thought juices going. Recognize you don't know stuff and learn stuff that you need to know because you have a vote. But nobody says that. The teachers don't say it because they're all women. You have female in group preference. And the politicians don't say it because they don't want to offend the ladies. <laughs> if you tell us the truth, we won't vote for you. Oh, yeah, that's going to go great when it comes to democratic futures. So people just aren't told that they're stupid at stuff. They're not told that they suck at stuff. And so you get this puffed up vanity, this hypersensitivity to being corrected, this fear of exposure, and uh, the death of freedom. Uh, that, that's sort of my uh, two cents, if that makes any sense. And now feel free to yeah. chime in with your thoughts. Yeah, Stefan, uh, I I wanted to point out that, in fact, that that change in which people can fail in the in the school was one of the first changes that the Chavismo made in Venezuela. That I I I, I remember I was around 13 years old. That that must be then 2003. And yeah, I remember how my teachers in high school were already uh, getting mad at how the new, the new education laws prevented them from failing students. They needed to make around right. four, five uh, extra curricular 
uh, test in order to for for the student to pass at least one of them. So the teacher completely lo loses the the motivation to make the 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 fifth of the test that 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 is repeatedly given the student after after he or she failed the previous one of the same of the same uh, of of the same uh, 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 the, the, the same difficulty because it 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 it's never ending and 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 the the the, the laws that were passed very early in the in the in in this regime uh, made possible to to make teachers responsible for for the failing of students and 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 also the another thing that you mentioned that made me remember how uh, people uh, people in Venezuela make some something that you uh, that you told uh, taking pride in things that they didn't earn. Uh, people in, in Venezuela are convinced this is a great country just because uh, it has a bunch of Venezuelas it, it, uh, in, in the Miss Universe, winning the Miss Universe, uh, just because uh, this is a country with beautiful beaches in the in the in our and our oceans are 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 some of the uh, of the most beautiful uh, or, or because we have the the, the Salto Angel uh, a great a great uh, falling uh, uh, one of, uh, of the of the greatest uh, cataratas. And 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 it, it must be related that they are taking pride in things that they, they didn't earn because they weren't taught to learn things when in the school they were they were almost prevented to fail. I don't know if that if that makes sense. Well, Venezuela sucks <laughs> as a whole. I mean, you've got a, an average IQ of eighty four. Last time it was measured, it's probably lower now. And your corruption index, with 100 being good and zero being bad, Venezuela's 17. It's a terrible, terrible place. And so people can say, well, we have pretty women in the contest. Not that you'll ever meet them. We have nice beaches, <laughs> even if they're covered with <laughs> drug corpses. But uh, the country sucks, and people should panic. People should freak out. People should recognize that they're living in a post-socialist moral sewer. A Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome nightmare of disappearing resources. But idiots take pride in things they didn't earn. And they... We won a sports team! Great! <laughs> I'm hungry! Um, so... Uh, yeah, that, that is exactly this... my, my thought. My, I, I, I'm not... I, I'm not proud of any of those things because it's no. Of course, you didn't earn those. I did the, the yeah. elephant in the room. Things are terrible here, and and yeah, but it's it's a lot cheaper for politicians to deliver false pride than real goods and services. 
it's a lot easier for politicians to deliver empty-headed nationalism than it is for politicians to actually make intelligent decisions about how society should be run. And so, you know, I I don't know. Until, until either dumb people start listening about what they're dumb about or until there's a collapse and dumb people are going to tragically get wiped out, you know, the best thing we can do is just keep appealing to people's intelligence and ri- reminding everyone on the planet that they're really bad at most things. I am, you are, we're just really, really bad at most things. So thanks for the call. I hope you stay safe. I appreciate the topic, and let's move on to the next call. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, up next we have Graham. Graham wrote in and said, We live in a world where money and therefore our economy is controlled by the banks and not the people. Are you aware of the debate, money creation? And some members of parliament call the fractional reserve system fraud on the people. And apparently the rest are just ignorant. What are your views on this money creation system? That's from Graham. Well, hey, Graham, uh, you, do you want to break out the system for some of our newer listeners who haven't been around for some of my rants about central banking? Yeah. Hi, Stefan. And by the way, you just used some great analogies there. That was making me laugh, some of them. Um, well, first of all, people have got to understand that there is a difference between currency and money. And and that's a very simple analogy. Uh, money has got an intrinsic value and currency that we currently use in the world, because I don't believe there's a single currency that's backed by gold anymore, um, is basically what they call the fiat system. In other words, it has no value. It is, it is just created. And to give you an example of a fractional reserve system, the, if you take, uh, for example, £100 and you put it in the bank, they can loan that out 10 or 20, 30 times. There is no limit to what they can loan it out to. So the in, event, in effect, they invent money. They, they magic this money up, and they only have to keep a fraction of that money in reserve. The rest of it is conjured up by them, in a nutshell. Right. Now, I have no problem with fractional reserve banking as long as it's in a free market. I mean, if if you want a place to store your gold-backed currency, then they're going to charge you, right? They're going to charge you um, a safety deposit box fee or whatever it is. So it's going to cost you a little bit of money. Now, if you say, well, you can take 20% of my gold and you can lend it out and I hope you do a good job and, and uh, you'll give me the profits, then you might actually make a little bit of scratch. You might make a little bit of money, a little bit of bakshish you might be able to make by letting the bank lend out. And and the more you let the bank lend out, maybe you can lend out 50% of my money. Maybe you can lend out 100% of my money. Well, the more likely you are to have both a reward or a loss. So if you say to the bank, I'm going to pay you 100 bucks a year to keep my gold in a vault. Okay. Well, every year you get an order to go and make sure your gold is still there, unlike the Federal Reserve. <laughs> and... You pay your 100 bucks a year and your gold is safe, right? But if you don't want to pay 100 bucks a year, then you can say to the bank, okay, lend it out, make some money, and use the money that you make from lending it out to pay my security, my safety deposit box or whatever. And that's, that's fine. I don't care what people do. Everyone has different levels of risk and reward, different comfort levels. Uh, they have a, they're in different situations in life. And um, so if people, like, so fractional reserve 
banking where your money is lent out at whatever multiple, hey, l- l- lend it out at 30 times multiple if you want. It's just that, you know, if the stock market changes 3%, you're going to be wiped out. Whereas if it goes up, you'll make a lot. So how much people want to risk of their money to gain a financial reward? It's entirely up to them. I, I don't care. I mean, I mean, I care generally in a vague sense, you know, but it's not something I'm going to, I mean, I've got my own money to manage, my own risks to tolerate and all that. And so um, fractional reserve banking, not the issue. Um, now, generally, of course, what happens is uh, people who gamble and lose want other people to make up their losses. Of course they do, right? Um, I had a, uh, a guy on the show uh, a year or two ago who was the head of a bank. And um, there's a great story in one of his books where the guys uh, had borrowed a lot of money to buy a $2 million house. And his house value in the housing crash had dropped down to a $1 million. And he was calling up the bank and he says, oh, man, you've you got to negotiate. You've got you to gotta lower my mortgage. Right? My house is only worth a $1 million. It was worth $2 million. Now I'm paying a $2 million mortgage for a house that's only worth a $1 million. You've got to help me out. Bank uh, owner was walking past, said, give me that phone. And picked up the phone. He said to the man, all right, let me ask you a question. If your house had gone from $2 million to $4 million in value and you'd sold it, would you share any of those profits with the bank? And of course, that was a long pause and everyone knows. He would say, no, the, the gains I would keep for myself and wouldn't share them with the bank. And he said, well, then why would the bank share your losses if you wouldn't share your gains? It's a very sensible question. And uh, I think that was the end of that negotiation. Uh, people who get greedy, and you only find out if you're greedy if you lose your money, right? <laughs> if you don't lose your money, if you gain your money, if it's double or nothing and you get double, then you're prudent, wise, great investor, right? <laughs> if you get nothing, you're, you're greedy right? and, and made a mistake. And uh, of course, everybody wants to socialize their losses. It's natural. You just can't allow it to happen. That's all. Because it, you know, the moral hazard of you could lose your money is really, really important. And... You know, the corporate structures uh, that exist, which are all statist inventions, and I had a conversation with Steph Kinsella uh, years ago about this, which people can check out, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A, um, check out on this channel. And uh, so I don't mind fractional reserve banking. I don't even care that much about corporate structures, although it'd be very different in a free market. The problem is, as you point out, it's the government monopoly where you have to use legal tender. You have to use legal tender to pay your taxes. You have to use legal tender to pay most bills. And you are not allowed to create a competing currency. You know, there are some rumors. I haven't checked them down. I haven't tracked them down and checked them out. But there are rumors that one of the reasons why there's a bayoneted in the ass graveyard where Muammar Gaddafi used to be in Libya is that he, perhaps even like Saddam Hussein, was looking to introduce a gold-backed currency. You start introducing a gold-backed currency in a world of central banks, yeah, you you might have a a pretty unhealthy day <laughs> because everybody would flee to that uh, as they are slowly beginning to move into Bitcoin. So, yeah, I think the system is wretched. I think the system is horrible. Uh, I just finished a presentation on the rise of Nazism. Ooh, you like your three-hour history shows? Have I got one for you coming up? It's a great, great show. And uh, I talk quite a bit about um, the role of the Rice Bank in the First World War and central banks in the First World War, allowing for the extension of the pan-European murder fest uh, which would have ended in six months if they'd all had to rely on their gold reserves, but because they could print money, they could drag on this goddamn thing for four years and kill 30 million people, all told. So 
Yeah, it is a murderous, horrifying, destructive, vicious, child-enslaving, future-enslaving, debt-enslaving, totalitarian system. It is the complete socialization of money. And this is why when people say, oh, there's a free market, it's like, nope. If there's no free market in money, there's no free market at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things I'd like to say on that, if you don't mind. One, uh, Yeah, please. Th- th- first of all, I am 100% a capitalist. I don't believe... I believe that society should be built on value. And when I say value, I don't mean monetary value. I mean the people... Um, I know this sounds strange, but the, there there is value value in being a nice society, a good society where everybody lives together and no one really struggles. And in and if people under a capitalist society earn enough money, for example, there's a guy I don't know if you've heard of the website billionsinchange.com, where he was a Buddhist monk, and one of the earlier conversations you had. He, this guy was a Buddhist monk, and he made $4 billion. And, he, and the only reason he wanted to make the $4 billion was so he could put it into engineering and solve problems for the world. And he's done that. And yet he's had to move from America, because they want to shut him down, to Singapore, for the simple reason that he has created... Uh, green energy well, via, via something called graphene he has created um, a water system, a fresh water system that that can give everywhere that needs water on the planet fresh water and I'm not talking about uh, um, I'm talking about people can grow food yeah, with, with this water that he can supply there's a number of things that he, he's, he's created. but Wait, uh, you know, sorry, Graham, to interrupt. I mean, i got to tell you, uh, I'm sure you are, are, are honest in, in what you're saying, but the monk worth $4 billion who's developed a system to supply fresh water to everyone on Earth, uh, it sounds like a bit of a character out of a comic book. <laughs> you know no, what no, I mean? No, like no, it, no, who, who, no, What's no, the name no, of this dude? Honestly, what's the story? Honestly, you can look at his... I mean, I'm, I'm not... No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is there are parts of this planet that are struggling with fresh water, and yet there's seawater. So he's devised a concept, and they've actually used it. They're showing it. If you watch the film, you can see it. It's called Billions in Change. Um, but my point is, he, he took his money and said, I want to engineer. I want to create things for people. And in the past, it has only been capitalism that has created that. It's capitalists that created the railway systems. It wasn't socialists. And the money system at the moment has changed so much, especially in the last 30 years, but certainly in the last 100 years, that we're going backwards again. And I firmly believe that if we was to change, just in, if, if I talked about England only, if we was to change our monetary system to a treasury system, um, and there's a book called Financiers and the Nations, you, you, you can't, it was actually written by an English MP in 1935, where he actually says there are three, three methods 
of treasury money. And one of them is called the Bradbury Pound, which is the Currency and Notes Act of 1914. They financed the First World War with it. And yet now they've took all of that away. You can't even buy that book in England anymore. I had to buy it from, from the US. So what I'm saying is I've got loads of books here. You just mentioned an answer. I've read the books, When Money Dies. Um, the point of the monetary system as it is currently in its current form, people in universities and economists are misinstructed of how it actually works. And then people come out of universities, they go into government positions, they advise MPs and ministers, etc., and they are advising them incorrectly because they have been misinstructed of how the monetary system works. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I you know, I, I respect, sorry, I just respectfully disagree. I, I don't think anyone's misinformed. I don't think anyone's misinstructed. I don't think anyone's getting bad advice. You, you give governments what they perceive as free money. You give politicians what they perceive as free money. And that's all they want. I mean, that's all they want. That's all they care about. And in England in particular, if you were to go to a gold-backed currency system or a Bitcoin-limited currency system, I mean, there would be um, a revolution. I mean, everybody's holding this tiger by the ears. You can't let it go. You can't vanquish it. Which is that uh, entire social structures, demographics, birth rates, immigration, everything has been founded on this infinite supply or perceived infinite supply of free money. And, uh, you know, when Germany takes in a million refugees, does... Do taxes go up? No. They just print money. So they get it later through inflation and all that kind of stuff. But uh, what happens if uh, if the flow of welfare to uh, third world immigrants in Europe uh, gets cut off? Which it would have to be if uh, if taxes were, uh, if, if currency was rationalized. Well, uh, there would be mass violence in the streets. There would be potential civil wars. There, I mean, all of the stuff that is uh, set up um, to fail when currency go south i mean this is so i mean i don't you know i don't believe that they're all misinformed because it's not that hard to be informed about currency and uh, they just they don't want to like at this point so many decisions have been made on the infinite flow of free money that um if that were to dry up in other words if taxes were to largely go to pay off a national debt and very little would be left over for services and none for welfare what would all of the uh, immigrants do or where would what would they do they they would riot. They would take to the streets. They would, and then what? I mean, I, I don't. I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's uh, self-interest on the part of the politicians. Well, I agree that it's self-interest, but I don't think it's self-interest on the part of the politicians. It's the banks, because the banks control the monetary system. It's above religion. It's above everything. Oh, I hate to be the guy who disagrees with you, but no. Banks don't have any money. They don't have any armies. They don't have any police. They don't have any weapons. How are they above everything? I mean, if the, if the politicians change the laws, what's the bank going to do? Start rolling out tanks? No. They're just going to go, okay. It's the politicians who have the weapons. They, they're the ones who have the force. Well, let me put it this way. We've spoken about corporations. Corporations and banking, for example... The way the system currently works, it is 
the corporations of the the banking corporations. So there's eight, for example, there's eighty members of 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 boards in the banks in the, the UK. They control England's and the United Kingdom's economy, not the MPs, because they invent money, and they then give money to the government and charge them interest when they haven't got it in the first place. Yeah, but when when government changes the role of currency, right? So in America, government has confiscated gold, has arbitrarily set arbitrarily set the price of gold to the detriment of gold owners. And people in America are very well armed, but they didn't do anything because the government has all the guns. It's the same thing with the banks. I mean, you, you're going to see like old fluffy Bernie Sanders haired style bankers with their loathsome spotty behinds lurching out of their executive chairs and taking on the special air service guys who have come to enforce the new <laughs> the new currency rules. No, it's the state. Uh, it's the state that has the power to change these things. And it is an unholy alliance. I'll certainly agree with you there, Graham. It's an unholy alliance in that uh, the the bankers are the new priests, right? So in in the old formulation, um, before modernity, the priests would give legitimacy to the kings by saying the kings were appointed by God, and therefore to disobey the king was to disobey God, and it was a Christian duty and a moral duty and a religious duty to obey the state, to obey the king, and that legitimized the rulers. Now, in return, the rulers would give a monopoly to the priests. In general, there may be some multiplicity, but in general, there would be a monopoly given to the priests for a particular religion or religious, you know, you could say Christianity, which would include a bunch of different denominations. But the priest would get monopoly and the politician, the, the king, would get legitimacy. And it's the same thing with banks. Now, banks are just the new priests of money in that the government gives the banks monopoly and the banks give governments the illusion of adding economic value. I mean, if you counterfeit, it seems for a moment that everyone's getting wealthier because there's more money in circulation, more goods are moving. Once the inflation hits, you realize it was a theft and a robbery. But the only way that governments give the illusion of providing value is because of the monopoly they grant to the banksters in money printing. And uh, that gives people the idea that the government is somehow paying for something with something other than, or with money other than money they've taken from the people. So uh, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I appreciate the call. I, I mean, for me, I love talking about the banking and, and all that kind of stuff. And it is a topic that, you know, people should can really, really enormously profit from diving into because uh, it's really impossible to understand the state without understanding how it's financed and how it's financed is in a grim, violent, coercive monopoly of doom. So I uh, appreciate uh, the call, uh, really enjoyable. And let's move on to the next. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Ace. Ace wrote in and said, from a Marine's perspective, I have witnessed sweeping changes in our culture, which are polarizing what I have learned from history. With what we know of the West's quote-unquote progress so far, such as crushed birth rates, mass psychological deception, feminism-slash-cultural Marxism, and a sweeping addendum on masculinity, what is your most educated opinion when asked, do you think there has been a concerted effort to destroy Western people? If so, who and why? If not, do you think the eminent decline has more to do with the beautiful rats theory, which leads back to R versus K selection theory? That's from Ace. Well, hello, Ace. How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I have a half a glass of scotch, and I've been enjoying the last three callers. <laughs> how, how, how full was your scotch glass when we started the call? Well, the definition of full. 
It's less full now it is. than where we started. All yes. right. All right. All right. Well, what do you think of these uh, of these questions? I'm very concerned, I'll have to say. Right. Um, when I was younger, in my earlier days, young, dumb, full of expletive, um, <laughs> I joined the Marine Corps thinking I would be um, a bastion of protecting the West, protecting the Republic. Um, I took civics class very seriously in public school. Um, I grew up in a pretty impoverished area of rural America. <clears throat> and I was, uh, I was a minority in my school. I'm an I'm ethnically European male. Um, public school was essentially uh, babysitting for me. Once I started hitting puberty, which was about two years after everybody else, <laughs> um, I started to disregard classes. I made B's and C's just not even caring, um, flew into college, no big deal, uh, decided I want to do history because my family members were so intimately involved with understanding culture, um, politics, current events, group psychology. I got kind of incubated with that stuff from an early age, even in rural America. <clears throat> um, but I did connect with the last caller, Graham, and his concerns with uh, central banking and creating value from nothing, which I didn't really learn until uh, I would say my junior and senior year of uh, university. I had a, a professor who was a, an avowed communist um, who I actually agreed with on quite a few things not related to economics. Um, and it was a combined class with history and philosophy, one of the greatest class ever. Um, it was a dual credit class, and from there it's just been <clears throat> serving active duty military and witnessing. Um, I, I can literally say that I've been witnessing all the things not to do um, to have a fighting force, um, which is one reason why I want to stay anonymous on this, uh, on this show, is because of the um, career consequences that come along with speaking out of turn. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about that so far. Right. Right. And what are your thoughts about, uh, the decay of the West and, and who may be responsible for it? Um, if there's, if it's engineered, if it's something that is the result of dominoes falling in the past or something that's being engineered in the present. Uh, there is a, a, a definite, uh, link that I can see from uh, spirit cooking and uh, the way the the left side of um, politics has been working. There's no conversation, really. I mean, you can you can talk about NFL football and first downs until you're you know red in the eye or bleeding from the ears, but what are you really talking about? And it seems that I would say out of a hundred peers, um, of mine, professional military professionals, you know, profession of arms, we study how to, um, do an, a multitude of things that are, you know, not the, it, it's not the average IQ person that does these things. This is more on the high end, uh, high stress, <clears throat> critically thinking, um, 
takes you a couple of weeks to wind down from an operation. And I would say out of those hundred people who are my peers, maybe half of them see the light, which is pretty frightening for what we do. Now, a concerted effort or a concerted effort to take down the West, I think would be um, people who want change for the sake of pulling more resources into their orbit. Um, and you see it in language and you see it in the deception. Um, it's one of the fundamentals of psychological operations is that you attack the culture uh, over time slowly like a frog in water. You just keep turning the temperature up and they don't even feel the change. And the West was a very powerful institution, but there's more recent. Yeah, it couldn't be taken down militarily, right? No, absolutely not. And that's Yeah, it had to be taken down philosophically or culturally. Absolutely. And that's why when you said in one of your shows, uh, communism didn't die with the USSR. As a matter of fact, if you look you know, into some of the deeper details of the agreements made between the SPD and the DDR, you know, with the, with the reunification of Germany, a lot of those Gestapo, or not Gestapo, but uh, a lot of the secret agents and the professionals that were communists in Eastern Europe and Germany uh, got university tenured positions, and they started influencing the West, uh, not economically anymore, just like my philosophy professor, she couldn't teach economics, even though she tried to espouse it in a history and philosophy class. Yeah, She tried to influence me that way. And well, I mean, if you look at when the South America went to shit, it was when the Nazis all fled Germany and went to South America. Exactly. So they bring the national socialism to South America. And uh, this is why Argentina and, and other countries, the growth stopped and it all started to decline. And it's, uh, you know, it's a rot from within. You know, the, the, the castle walls can stand anything from outside. It's just that the sinkhole from inside takes down the whole city. Correct. You know, and I, I sympathize with Graham's opinion on uh, on fractional reserve banking. I think that. There's an unholy alliance for sure, but at the same time, um, it is politicians making the decisions. But if you take Timothy Geithner, for example, he was he was working at Goldman Sachs for years and years, and then you know, oh, it's he would be the best person to be a treasury or the best person to work at the Federal Reserve because he knows the system so well. Well, he probably understands that corporations like that last longer than most governments do, and that's a good investment to make. Right. Um, right. To pull the United States government into the orbit of you know global banking cartels, which, as you can see, um, our politicians are most clearly linked to. Thank you, Julian Assange. Yeah. Um, pretty heavy stuff. Um, I would say it. It's uh, it's been a godsend to have your uh, podcast broadcast daily i i download it in podcasts and i listen to it on the way to work and it's just like it's like we're uh brothers from another mother or something and you're speaking <laughs> you're speaking my language for sure well i appreciate that ace i mean that's that's great to hear and you know we are both warriors although your chance of shrapnel is is slightly higher than mine <laughs> well you know sometimes i should say i get a sliver and uh, paper cuts so yeah we're on pretty much the same page but um no i, I appreciate your kind words uh yeah i mean th this, it is of course a great question what is bringing down western civilization and you know i've heard theories oh it's the jews and i think i mean I, I don't fundamentally accept that because somebody has to you know let's say you know jews produce a lot of movies a lot of television somebody has somebody's got to watch them somebody's got to buy them nobody's forcing them to 
buy a watch these things, right? So I don't, I don't buy that um, fundamentally. Um, is it? I don't fundamentally buy that it's women and the vote. I, I think these are factors. I mean, the women and the vote thing is is a factor, but um, no, it's it's you know, and I I sort of hate to get. I just came off this call with Mike Cernovich and Vox Day where we talked about evil. Yeah, with this sort of spirit cooking stuff and this satanic stuff and monstrous, monstrous evil stuff that's going on, uh, is alleged to be going on in the in the world these days, which we'll find out about hopefully sooner rather than later about the facts. But um, it is the old temptation of the devil himself, and the devil himself wishes to pull you out of reality by offering you something for nothing. Once the devil can pull you out of reality by offering you something for nothing, then you become dependent upon that lie. Yeah, and. The devil appeared in the form of government schools originally, and then the form in the form of central banks, right? And then they said, you can have something for nothing. You can have money with no gold. You can have money without limit. You can have something for nothing. Yeah. And I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was government schools. Maybe it was something else. I don't know why people fell for the something for nothing bullshit, because that, that's, that's all it really comes down well, to. Well, isn't that American exceptionalism, though? <laughs> Well, no, because it was around the world. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. I mean, first world war came along. All the Allied powers either had instituted or utilized central banks. They all stripped their convertibility of currency to gold, and so something for nothing. There's nothing more dangerous than something for nothing, <laughs> because it takes you out of the natural, primal, animal state of reality. Tell me about it. Where things require effort, and fruit, at least in Europe, doesn't fall in your lap twenty-four. Seven. Yep. Something for nothing. That's the great danger. You can have something for nothing. Magic. Well, as soon as you get sold on magic, you get enslaved to the sorcerer who has to continue to provide that magic. And I have, and I just finished this three-hour presentation on the rise of Nazism. Yeah, I can't where wait I, for it. I take some of the, uh, thanks, I take some of the uh, philosophers, for want of a better word, who paved the way for Nazism, the collectivists, the mystics, the anti-rationalists, uh, the will to power people, the, you know, or the world spirit that inhabits nations and allows them to dominate others morally and so on. And um, it is up to ferocious intellectuals to keep the people safe. I mean, I'm sure you have this perspective when you look upon the sheep of humanity that you are a sheepdog who keeps the wolves at bay, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the role of the military, right? I mean... That's mm. why there's the military. It's the old Jack Nicholson line from A Few Good Men. You know, who's going to stand on that wall? You? Yes. There are bad people out there who want to do bad things to <clears> you, <throat> and I stand between you and those bad people. And for me, combat philosophy is all that matters. There are terrible, destructive, vicious, and new word for my vocabulary, truly satanic mm -hmm. perspectives and ideas out there in the world. And it is up to combat philosophers to basically pick up the shiv and do some wet work on these terrible ideas. It's never about the people. Who cares about the people? They're merely vehicles for the poison. And it is up to those who have the capacity, the wit, the rigor, the charisma, the enthusiasm, the excellence and execution in language to take 
civilization-destroying ideas out back and shoot them. And, and you don't shoot them in the head because that's too quick. That's right. <laughs> you know, a nice, nice belly shot. That's right. You know, where, you're, where your acids uh, mix up with your innards. Like something slow. That's right. You know, like that old Johnny Cash thing, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Well, no, I, I, I'm a, a wet work specialist in the elimination of bad ideas. And I, I mean, I, I know I make lots of jokes and, and uh, all of that, but I take that deadly seriously. Yep. Because if, if people don't, like if, if intellectuals, if smart people, and you know, you're a brother with me that way too, or if smart people aren't willing to take on bad ideas, bad ideas overwhelm and take down civilization. And it's happened over and over and over again. It's not the Jews, and it's not women, and it's not the welfare states. These are all symptoms. And I'm not putting them all in the same category to the same level of effectiveness. You know, there are some women who fight for freedom. There are lots of Jews who said, you know, this something for nothing is bullshit, and it's going to destroy you. I mean, so many of the free market economists were Jewish. Oh, but the Jews are like, come on. They're, they're, <laughs> they were yeah. very cunning at warning us then of how dangerous the something for nothing was. There is an overrepresentation, but I, I don't find that yeah, it's a because they're smart. Yeah, they're they're culturally no, yeah, you, culturally engaged yeah. academics and philosophy. But I can tell you, there's there's officers in the Marine Corps that I'm peers with that are Jewish, and they're no different. Yeah, I bet you they kick as much ass as anyone. Exactly, Jews are smart. Uh, particularly language-wise, and I've gone over the biological and cultural reasons for that in the show before. Jews are smart. So what? Be smarter. You know, <laughs> if you think that's such a terrible influence, go be smarter. I am. Go do better. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, if you oh, the Jews are uh, whoever, <laughs> the cabal, and just go be better. Go be smarter. You know, we still have Shakespeare, <laughs> right? So uh, and Dickens and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dostoevsky. So um, this. You know, I, in in a sense, I don't I don't care if there's big some big ulterior motive to to take down the West or if there's secret meetings or cabals. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to have big enough guns to make it go away, and that's intellectual firepower, and that's me being rigorous and courageous and well researched and humble and all of the things and and charismatic as as, as I can be and taking risks and and doing new topics and and keeping people stimulated. I mean, God, I was just talking about this with Mike the other day uh, about how it seems like a lot of people in the media, I mean, I guess I can say I've got a fairly long career by now, 10 years in the alternative media and all, and I still love what I do because it's new. Because I'm constantly exploring new ideas, new solutions, new arguments, and I don't know how the people do it where it like, seems like the same show over and over again. And I respect what they do and that kind of repetition can be very helpful for people. But... um Staying stimulated, staying active, staying engaged, staying interesting. Oh, Lord. Yeah, yes. <laughs> staying interesting. Right? That's the challenge, right? I mean, sometimes, I mean, I hope that you don't like put on the next show saying, oh, I know exactly what he's going to say. <laughs> I think that'd be pretty tragic, right? But um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I don't care who's, you know, who, if anyone or any group has got it in for Western civilization. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, women don't know much about politics. It's like, okay, then tell them that. And tell them if they don't know what they're talking about, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, beta males will never do that. Okay, then tell beta males that they're cucks and useless and, you know, as, as about as handy to civilization as tits on a bull. And uh, they need to get out of the way or, or grow a pair, to put it bluntly. And uh, it just, you know, be blunt and be, you know, 
beta males have got their stuff to do. You know, somebody's got to guard the harem, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, but uh, just be blunt. You know, when 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 I was bad at stuff, you know, people would tell me, and that's stuff we all need to hear, so we can focus our efforts on the stuff we're good at. And I do. Um, yeah. Oh, I think in the army they're pretty clear, unless you're uh, a, a woman or. <laughs> A minority whose numbers you have to get up. I'm sure, you know, in the army, for the most part, they say, you suck. Oh, yeah. So one of the most embarrassing experiences of my professional career, um, I was having a, a pretty heated, uh, well, um, well-attended meeting about some joint-level stuff between a few countries. And uh, my counterpart, who I had heard about beforehand, who I was essentially going to be engaging directly with negotiations for a few important things. Um, uh, her name was, you know, Lisa, blah, 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 whatever. Well, Lisa showed up and sat across from me in this, you know, this other military uniform. And it was totally a six foot two fat dude on hormones trying to fake a female voice. Huh. And uh, I tried my hardest not to be surprised, um, but I failed. I lost, I kind of lost a bit of bearing got red in the face because I was ready to engage and, you know, be very to the point. And it actually shook me a bit. So like in negotiations, it's, it was kind of an effective tool. I eventually won the, the negotiation, but it was a curveball to say the least. Um, but the entire, the entire sexual structure of what is and is not feasible or possible or, medically qualifying uh in the military profession has changed and it's just like it's no rules it's completely subjective which is uh very very anything anything subjective is very counterintuitive to the uh to the lower ranks in the military because if you breed any sort of subjectivity the next thing you have is uh resentment because things can be looked at and viewed at in a multiplicity of different ways. And it's hard to maintain discipline if everybody sees things differently. Um, which goes back to diversity in the ranks where, you know, it, it just adds another layer of red tape for people who are responsible for organizing, moving, and conquering targets. Um, now, on the other hand, um, depending on what type of unit or your specialty is, it's actually relatively easy to get that stuff going, but it's not blanketed throughout the military. Um, so you can't talk about everything. You can't have deep discussions about anything. So what you have is a, a fostering environment of superficiality, inse uh, insecurity, uh, loss of connection. Um, and it takes a lot, a lot of experience to actually get that bond uh, kind of like a warrior bind where it's implicit communication across, you know, across the field. You don't, you don't have to yell across the field. You just know that person is trained to do a certain thing and they're going to do it and they'll be there even if you can't see them. Uh, those sort of well, yeah, but wouldn't it be fair to say as well? And I've had some soldiers call into the show about this: uh, that uh, political correctness has done a good deal of harm to trust in the military because you don't know if people are there because they're competent or because of political correctness. And uh, the level of trust you need, of course, in the military is extraordinarily high. Yeah. And uh, I've had some people say that it does undermine unity and and trust and cohesion in the unit because some people you have to carry. Correct, and um, 
I look at the numbers, um, I'm privileged in my position to look at some interesting statistics and um, the definition for minority versus majority as far as racial diversity is, is that um, in most units, you know, the white male is actually the minority, but he's described in, and def- defined as the majority because he's the biggest, mm. he's the biggest minority, right? He's the big, <laughs> right. he's the biggest right. minority, but he hasn't reached 49 or even 50%, which would, which is what it takes 51% to be the majority. Um, so when you have political rhetoric and CNN and Fox and mainstream media, um, you know, being very divisive, you know, people pick that up. Now I, I will say that the, the Marine Corps specifically does a really, really good job of formulating its own culture much much, much better than the Air Force or the Army does, mm. um, just because of our our mission. Wait, hang on. Sorry, I, I just started to interrupt. I just wanted to make a note here that uh, uh, for for everyone who 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 knows, at this day, upon this time, uh, somebody from the Marines said that they did something better than the the Air Force or the Army. That's rare. And I just I just wanted people to yes. be aware that this moment in time had occurred. Now, please, please continue. I knew you were going to pick up on that. I was. I'm very I'm very happy you <laughs> paused me to do that. Um, yeah. but but it's different but we're still at, we're still held to the same rules because we're all under the same government and i understand that uh it makes our job harder um and our mission is changing it's going to be a an interesting well actually it's going to be an interesting four days but after that i would even say the morphing of the military is going to be interesting to watch in the next year to one year to five years to ten years if i decide to stay in right 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 so i mean uh the the machinations of the enemy can never be known and if there is an enemy i think in this case can never be particularly known what matters is to hell with the enemy let's just arm ourselves as well as possible and uh you know trust in our resolution um because the, a lot of people seem to spend a lot of time trying to dig up these enemies that are undoing western civilization and and so so what if you find them what's the solution Let's say you find a group of uh, redhead people in a bunker who are, you know, trying to figure out how to, what are you going to do? I mean, so what? So people are going to say, well, they still want free stuff from the government, right? They they still want uh, uh, advantageous legislation for them and their buddies. They still want a military industrial complex to profit off war. So even if you do find some cabal of redheaded people in a bunker who are plotting the demise of Western civilization, what are you going to do about it? The problems that you would have to solve exist regardless of their source. And it's not like, well, if you, you know, let's say you find these people and, I don't know, they did something illegal and you could throw them all in jail. Well, all of the systems that they put in place are still there. All the perverse incentives that screw up society and civilization are all still there. You're still going to have to undo it all. And I bet you there's not one goddamn person in the world or in the West who's on welfare and has messed up their life. Maybe some woman, she's got like four kids by four guys. And and so you go to this woman and you say, ah, well, you know, I know that you're getting all this welfare and you're getting all these benefits and you'd have to work in the welfare cliff. You have to make $80,000 a year just to make up for all the free stuff you're getting. But did you know that this whole welfare scheme, this whole welfare setup with this bunch of redheaded guys in a bunker? So you'll find giving it up now, right? Oh, yeah. Oh God! <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I know who who cares who started it? Who cares who's managing it? 
the incentives are all going to be there. The, the mess is all going to be there. Even if you find this magical cabal of people, you're still going to have to solve the problem. And so I don't care. The cabal, finding the cabal, revealing some cabal, some conspiracy, whatever, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know, massive numbers of people up in the in the in the U.S. government are like these crazy Satanists. Yeah. Maybe. Well, a bunch of British MPs turned out to be pedophiles. Did that shrink the welfare state? Did that change government schools into private schools? No. Did that change anything about central banking or national debt? No. No, it did not. So I don't care about the cabal because even if I believed in them and even if I found them and even if they were brought wriggling to the light and prosecuted and so on, so what? Oh, come on. You know, still got still to fix all the problems. You know you want to see Hillary Clinton indicted and strung. Oh, okay. Now, if you're talking about my particular um, <laughs> celebrity crush, now that normally means that, normally means, uh, that you have a, a, an affinity, you know, like Mike Cernovich with um, – Huma Abedin, but this is my celebrity crush. I just use the word in a different uh, context with Hillary Clinton. So, look, I, I get that, but that's because, you know, she's about to get into power and all of that. But um, she got help. Uh, she's not a cabal. She's like out front. <laughs> she's like, she's like, you have to find her in a bunker, although you may actually, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she'd be the first president to accept uh, the presidency uh, from a non extradition country in the Middle East. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she's gotten, <laughs> she's gotten a lot. I mean, I've always wondered, you know, and, and I deal directly with. A lot of the, um, well, I guess I, I just won't say it, but I deal directly with a lot of the relationship understandings for that sort of stuff. And I don't know why we have such strong alliances with places like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. I mean, I understand they let us have bases there and, you know, run operations. But at the same time, um, it's, a, it's sort of a moral hazard if it were to ever get out <clears throat> WikiLeaks and completely undermine the credibility. But at the same time, maybe it's completely irrational since the American public doesn't see that much, you know, they don't have that much uh, foresight. So WikiLeaks, I think, is a fantastic thing um, for uncovering that cabal that I, I think is valuable for understanding uh, from a cultural historical perspective. Because I, I don't think the refugee crisis was a, or excuse me, I don't think the migrant crisis was a mistake. I don't, I don't think that... Um, after years and almost almost two decades of war in the Middle East, all of a sudden there was a migrant crisis. I mean, the taking out of Gaddafi, the taking out of Syria, uh, de destabilizing Syria, um, and allowing a NATO partner like uh, Turkey's Erdogan to take power, um, and then him control Angela Merkel, trying to get free visas, you know, into Europe, and Angela Merkel just bending over and taking it. Um, oh, we but we don't know. Maybe maybe some Saudi uh, uh, royalty, or maybe some Middle Eastern royalty bailed out Deutsche Bank. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe they maybe maybe she's part of some horrible cabal, and they have stuff on her. Well, I, I've heard that uh, the Qataris were looking at investing into Deutsche Bank to give it some liquidity, but I could never confirm it. Right. Uh, well, no, of course. I mean, until somebody uses P ampersand. S word as password, and <laughs> somebody guesses that, I can lead to yeah. figure it out. Uh, but I, it, you know, for me, some some cabal or not, it, what what is it going to change in what I do every day? All, all the time I spend trying to ferret out some cabal is time I'm not out there making better arguments that already exist, whether the cabal is there or gone tomorrow. So I don't want to. I mean, that's that's not. I, I and it won't do any good. Won't do any good for for me. And again, there are some people who do it, and I don't 
think it's a bad thing. I mean, some people are better suited for that kind of stuff, and maybe there is a value in it that I can't see. So I don't want to sort of say, well, anyone who looks into a cabal is wasting their time and so on. It's not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is to be much more combative and, and, and creative in the opposition of the ideas that are, rather than trying to maybe plug the source or something. I think the source is is so so wide and disseminated now like as you say it's the movies it's the tv it's the academics it's the mainstream media it's politics like all these ideas are so spread out by now yeah that uh you know shutting off the source isn't gonna you know hey i i found the stream that started the ocean i've plugged it well still got an ocean now haven't we (laughs) so we got to deal with that yeah i agree so well um i appreciate your opinion for sure uh i super super uh support your show and what you're doing. Uh, I think, you know, the last time I've been stimulated to this extent was my philosopher, uh, uh, my philosophy class in college where I took, what, nothing about a hot date. Oh, come on. Oh, well, that's a different, that's a different sort of stimulation. Which (laughs) I also, um, you had a caller not too long ago. Her name was Louisa. I think she was from Sweden. Mm. Yeah. She said she was having poor dating experiences. Yeah. Well, um, I will have to say that it's awful in America. I've, I've dated uh, a few. I've, I've dated a few European women. Only one of those turned out to be uh, Americanized, as I like to put it. Mm. Uh, the other two were very understanding. They weren't nearly as bad as I expected. Um, but just the distance and my uh, my occupation and their occupations kind of got in the way. But. But listen, Ace, like like most Marines, the best thing to do is to ask the guys of the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy how to get dates, because I think those guys have really got it down, and I'm sure you could use their expertise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just Oh, kidding. no, I, I like the joke, uh, but it's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Ace, for the call. You're welcome back anytime. It was really enjoyable, but we're going to move on to the next caller now. All right, Stefan, take care. Thanks, man. All right, up next we have Justin. Justin wrote in and said... My friend and I just concluded, after a rather lively discussion, that the definition of philosophy is logically fallacious, as it is being defined as both the study of knowledge and experience, and as any belief that is held and acknowledged by an individual. Is this definition of philosophy not the same as saying something is existent and non-existent at the same time? Shouldn't a logical definition of a word still be used to define said word? I believe that the definition is not applicable, as definitions of word should have some objective merits. Am I misguided in this belief? That's from Justin. Justin time. Justin, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am doing well. I am looking forward uh, to to the question. So first, of course, if we're going to talk about philosophy and what it means, what is your definition, my brother, of philosophy? I'd have to go with the my personal definition of it tradi- would be like the traditional definition that it's the study of uh, knowledge and experience. But as I'm to understand, you know, every dictionary you can read online, Merriam-Webster, all have it defined also alternatively as any belief or experience. You could have a, po- or a personal philosophy, like my philosophy is that everyone's a, a unicorn in a costume and then that's a perfectly valid usage yeah, of philosophy. Yeah, that's not Yeah, that's not for me. I mean, for me it would be the the study of truth according to reason and evidence. That would be what philosophy is. Uh, the study of belief, well, I mean, an anthropologist studies belief, but we would not call an anthropologist a philosopher. 
the study of uh, experience. Well, a biographer studies experience, but we would not call that person uh, a philosopher. So I would have to go with, you know, pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence. Uh, that would be um, uh, my, uh, the, the way that I would work would determine if you're comfortable working with that term or you want to modify it, that's perfectly fine, of course. Then we can start from there. Well, you could have a study of systems or, or patterns of anthropology or or uh writing that wouldn't really you know an, an anthropologist can study from outside of uh you know what's evident he can make connections between like i, I don't know enough about anthropology to give an example but you could study well like and, the, and sorry the and just just to be clear just to be clear an anthropologist can balance his checkbook that doesn't make him a mathematician and an anthropologist can use reason and evidence in pursuit of truth that doesn't necessarily it has to be a sort of primary occupation or what you do with the majority of your yeah, time I'll, I'm only uh, accept and, that. uh, That's, yeah i mean i i play tennis i'm not a professional tennis player <laughs> i mean it's you know so um so if we can sort of work with um the pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence um, and now, I understand that this, of course, is um, is an umbrella term for other disciplines as well. I mean, science, of course, is the tr pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence. But um, philosophy is the mother of all disciplines, uh, at least all objective disciplines. And so I have no problem with um, philosophy being an umbrella term, which would include uh, subsections uh, according to, uh, you know, particularly the empirical subsections like the physical sciences and biology and so on. So uh, if we can sort of start with that as a way of viewing philosophy, then we can move into uh, the criticisms you might have of that terminology. Okay, no, no, I'm willing to accept your, your definition of philosophy as the, the logical... The pursuit of truth according to reason, reason and evidence, okay. or using reason and evidence. Pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence. So... Hmm. So, so there's a few things embedded in that which was worth breaking out, because I mean the words are like the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean there's lots of stuff underneath it. Mm -hmm. So the pursuit uh, means that it's not an automatic process, right? Like when I sleep, my breathing, my heart rate—they're all automatic processes. I wouldn't say I'm in hot pursuit of a heart rate; right? it just kind of happens, right? So the pursuit of truth means that it's not an automatic process, and it requires. Now, the truth is not automatic to the human mind. Instincts are more automatic to animals, but truth is not automatic to the human mind. So the pursuit of truth, just like the pursuit of happiness, right? The founding fathers didn't guarantee happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. So the pursuit of truth, according to reason and evidence, well, what that says is that for something to be true, it needs to accord with reason and evidence. And since reason is derived from the consistent behavior of matter and energy, then we're saying that truth is something that exists outside of the mind, which we must pursue, and the only way to be certain we have it is if our hypotheses or our claims for truth accord with reason and evidence. Now, you could say reason and or evidence, but since you really have to have a hypothesis or an idea or an argument in order to be in the realm of philosophy, I think we'd have to say uh, reason and evidence if necessary, right? I mean, you can create a theoretical construct uh, that, uh, like UPB, I mean, you could say that there's some evidence in general for it, but universally preferable behavior, my sort of theory of ethics, which people can find at freedomainradio.com slash free. Well, is there an empirical test for it? Well, it's a sort of syllogism. And um, 
So the reason first, and then evidence if uh, if necessary. So applying your definition of philosophy to linguistics, language, and as an example, the word philosophy, you're saying it's the pursuit of truth regarding it's some kind of, you know, empirical rationale behind it. Dude, do you need to write this down? We've gone over this like five times now. <laughs> Please just write it down. Because if we keep going, if I keep having to go over the definition, I've got to go slowly mental. The pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence. Okay. Or using the standard of reason and evidence. Oh, you, you understand. Reason and evidence, know. yeah. But... Yeah. Truth, reason, evidence. <laughs> okay. Just write those down. It'll be fine. All right. So the pursuit of reason and evidence behind linguistics i mean is there i guess Wait, the, no. the, the pursuit of truth not the pursuit of reason <laughs> and evidence okay i'm sorry I'm are you sorry. tired i am tired Do you need I, a coffee I, I okay had a i got in a good few hours so all right but, uh, <laughs> well well if you need a coffee you might want to look into your consumption but all right go ahead all right so so we, we so linguistics okay now first of all i'm sorry to be annoying but what do you mean by linguistics the usage of words language in general, I mean, syntax. But how's it different from how's it different from language? Linguistics and language. Um, like, why not just use the word language? Language, language. is the use of words. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That that in specific. So we can say language. Talking about yes, the philosophy of language. Okay. That's uh, that's easier because linguistics. You know, we get all Chomsky Big and umbrella. I yeah. get confused. So. Okay. So let's uh, let's go with uh, language. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So. There's no real, uh, well, I guess you could apply reason to, but I mean, a truth behind language, I don't, is that something so binary that language can be true? What, what, what do you mean? A, I, hang on, hang on. <laughs> a truth behind language? I don't even know what that means. Can, can you, can we break it down to something a bit more empirical or a bit? This is very all very abstract, and I don't know what it means. And you're going on as if I do. Like, right? what the hell does a truth behind language mean? And you well, can explain it, but let's. If you want to put something out there, make sure I understand it before we go forward. Well, do you agree that it's possible to have a philosophy of language? A philosophy of language. That's an interesting question. I don't know. A philosophy of language. What is the truth about language? Uh, Yes, yes, yes. I th I think so. I think yeah. Actually, I think so because that's related to metaphysics and epistemology. Because you would need to figure out the degree to which language accurately reflects reality, right? So when I say a rock, how big is it? What color is it? Where is it? Uh, what kind is it? Uh, these things could all be very quite confusing. So yes, given that language is always an imperfect representation of reality, though not necessarily of logic. Uh, I think the deviations between language and reality or the ambivalence between language and that which it describes would be well worth philosophical examination after we solve the problem of evil. So, yes, uh, <laughs> I think philosophy of language could be, could be cool. All right. So to say that, I guess this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but saying that a word has two two definitions that in in the same usage of a word regardless of context that the word means two opposite things that doesn't conform to to rationale that's not that's not reasonable i don't believe okay can you give me an example 
Well, the word of a word, but all right. So this was the the you know, jumping off point from where all this comes from. Uh, yeah. Me and my friend were talking, and he says that if someone, say with some mental disorder, believes that they were abducted by aliens, he could live his life believing that he was abducted by aliens, and that could be classified as his philosophy. I disagreed because huh. there's nothing. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, no. but. That that certainly is not the pursuit of truth according to reason and evidence. Yeah, no, by under that definition of yeah, but so yeah, yeah. If you narrow it down to one definition, but definitions well, are no, it's not narrowing it. You say narrowing like it's a pejorative, like narrow-minded. It's precision. No, no, right? no, no, no. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I I, I meant more of uh, kind of cutting off the dead weight, I guess. But I mean, definitions of words yeah. are kind you, of you don't want philosophy to be stuff people believe. Yeah. That we already have a word for that. It's called belief. Exactly. And parsimony of language is important. Like, it's important not to unnecessarily multiply words uh, or or concepts. Uh, really, it's um, and, and so uh, uh, that's why when you started talking about linguistics, I'm like, well, can we just use the word language? And it's like, mm-hmm. yes, okay, good, right? And so I don't want to. If there already is the word belief, which is a perspective held in someone's mind that they think is true or valid. Well, we already have the word belief, so let's not confuse the word belief with philosophy any more than we would confuse uh, throwing something with physics or uh, Lego with engineering, right? I mean, we already have uh, words for, for things. We shouldn't, um, we shouldn't conflate words together because uh, uh, philosophy, of course, is a rigorous pursuit of truth, reason and evidence and all that. And belief is just can be anything that people accept as true, and uh, we don't want to mistake those two. Okay. I would say that's... Uh... It's like fair. cosmology versus physics, right? Cosmology is just the way people think the universe runs. It could be on the back of a turtle. It could be that the Earth is the center of the universe. It could be flat with the robot penguin guards around the perimeter, uh, as you may recall from the wonderful conversation I had with the <laughs> flat Earth fellow. But uh, So cosmology is what people believe about the universe and the world. But physics um, or astronomy would be a more of a rigorous uh, examination of the uh, sense data and um, information about the universe. I agree with that definition, but I mean, I would, I mean, I'd have to say that language is, you know, as valid as its usage. I mean, the, the reason words are defined as what they are is due to their usage. And I mean, I, I assume because it's in every dictionary source, you can look up that there's a a pretty wide usage of philosophy just as any held belief. So, so is that but it, it, I care about the general right I mean why would I care about what is generally in dictionaries I mean uh, I don't I mean, know just, uh, the usage of uh, words you know, could be. Are historical implements used generally in the realm of values it used generally to confuse rather than to illuminate uh, so um, yeah I mean the dictionary games to me are always a challenge right like I could have gone and looked up a definition of philosophy and said okay well here's the definition of philosophy I read here or here or here um but I you know I don't I don't care yeah, yeah <laughs> so, you no, know I want to no, I want philosophy's to make, about uh, I'll make the case clearly as clearly as I can in the moment or in the present but sorry go ahead no, I was just agreeing with you that's that's not what philosophy's about is looking up and seeing what other people have to say about stuff it's about formulating your own the rigorous pursuit of truth through reasoning something else, evidence, whatever, right. however you define it. Sorry. But, uh, oh, no, no. 
Uh, yeah, I guess that's. Uh, I mean, so go back to your friend and say this is, you know, this is a definition of philosophy. And of course, you know, we can always test that definition of philosophy. You know, this is the old Socratic method. You come up with a definition of something, and then you test that definition to see if it holds against different cases and all that. And you know, if you come up with a better one, then please uh, let me know. Uh, I would certainly appreciate that. Um, but uh, that that would be what I would work with. And I think if you take that approach, it will eliminate a lot of confusion about how things uh, how things can work in our mind and in the world and in the minds and arguments of those around us. All right. I uh, I I know that. So you could say, like, if you said if you said something to interrupt, but you know, somebody says God exists. Well, that's not a philosophical statement. It, it, it may be. It's not the pursuit of truth. It's, it's an a, assertion. A state. It's, a, it's an assertion, and an assertion is not philosophy. In fact, it's the opposite of philosophy uh, because it is the assertion of a truth rather than the pursuit of truth, and it uses no reason and evidence, but rather usually a subtle form of intimidation or bribery. So so these, you know, does the government exist? Right? These are things you can figure out with regards to reason and evidence. So if you have that as a starting place, I think you can go to some pretty cool places, and you can eliminate a lot of fairly unproductive discussions with friends about space aliens and <laughs> other things which are not particularly philosophical does that help is it a good place to start with your friend yeah yeah no i'm i i believe so i'm just still kind of milling over your definition of, of philosophy reason and so by reason i assume you mean it's rational logically consistent with itself right? it's internal consistency internal. with its own premises oh. and arguments and based off evidence, so so factual. Well, evidence is how we get reason, right? Because reason says that things need to be objective and uh, universal and uh, non-contradictory. And we get that by looking at matter, right? The reason we have concepts is because there are atoms and atoms behave in predictable ways. And that's why we have concepts. Concepts are that which unite atoms and purpose, right? So we know a rock because it shares atoms with other rocks. We know a chair, not because it shares wood with a tree, but because it shares its form with the purpose of the person who makes the chair. And so uh, it is uh, from the consistency of matter that we get the need for consistency in our ideas. Since our ideas, when they're talking philosophically, when we're talking philosophically, our ideas have to match what's in the world. What's in the world is consistent, and therefore I, I, our ideas must be consistent. Um, my ideas can no more be contradictory than a chair can be an elephant at the same time. That would be a contradiction in matter, which never happens. Uh, and, you know, I know people come up with this quantum magic, <laughs> quantum magic and gold and, and uh, all that, but quantum has nothing to do with sense data. And philosophy uh, is uh, science is focused on quantum philosophy is focused on sense data because that's where the philosophical uh, virtues exist. They don't exist at the subatomic level; they exist at the sense level. And uh, like if you if you stab a guy in the side, you don't get to say, "Well, most of the atoms in the knife are very far apart, and it's a lot of space, and most of the atoms in his side are very far apart, and there's a lot of space." So really, I didn't stab him at all. It was just atoms passing through and coming back. Yeah, I mean, it's good at, luck with yeah, that. At a higher level. You. Unless you have Deepak Chopra in the <laughs> in the jury booth, you're not going to have much luck with that. So um, yeah, so philosophy works at the sense level, and all all of the quantum phenomena all cancel each other way out long before you get to sense data. So uh, the consistency of reason uh, is derived from 
the consistency of matter, and therefore anything which you're using to describe things in the world must be consistent, otherwise it can't be describing what's in the world, world because conservation of energy and, and stable properties of atoms and so on is uh, what we base everything on. If that stability didn't exist, neither would we, right? So. Okay. Well, hold on. Well, given the original example of... Uh, say someone with a brain damage believes they're abducted by aliens and lives their life believing they're abducted by aliens and makes decision decisions of believing they're abducted by aliens that would, even though they didn't physically get abducted by aliens, there was an experience triggered by whatever brain damage that led to them having an internally consistent belief that they were abducted by aliens. So under sure, but there are there are people who've lost a limb who have phantom pain in that limb, right? It, the limb can itch, their limb limb can ache, and so on. And so they have a subjective experience, like if they close their eyes, or maybe when they're waking up from a dream or whatever, right? They have a subjective experience that they have a limb, but they don't have a limb. They don't have a limb. You you don't buy them two gloves, right? I mean, I guess you could, but it'd be kind of cruel. So that wouldn't qualify under so, your definition. So of somebody's evidence. subjective experience, yeah, somebody's subjective experience based on damage doesn't matter. Like they they can open up your skull and they can put electrodes into your brain, and they can stimulate religious experiences for you. Yeah, and like cherubs and angels and flying. I mean, they can really a sense of oneness and unity. Similar to epilepsy, if I understand it, and it's been a while since I've read this stuff, so please feel free to look it up yourself. But yeah, electrical stimulation can produce religious experiences in in people, and um, I guess if you had those electrical experiences without some outside probe, uh, you would believe it came from outside your brain. But uh, it's not evidence. That would be a, that would be a hypothesis, right? So this guy would have a hypothesis: I was abducted by space aliens, and it's possible. Like that's internally. The hypothesis is not necessarily inconsistent with reality. They could be space aliens, mm -hmm. and they could be abducting people. I mean, it's within the realm of physical possibility. And um, that would be a hypothesis, and you would look for a, um, a, the, the, the simplest and most likely explanation. And if the person did experience brain damage, then we would look at that uh, and, and see if that were the case. I mean, so for instance, like if somebody's arm is missing and it's giving them phantom pain, one explanation could be that their arm has been replaced by a ghost arm that does exist, but in another dimension. Okay, that would be a hypothesis, and you would test it you for, would the test evidence, for that. And the evidence wouldn't be that there's a ghost arm. So Right, there's no arm. Applies and and we, you know, the phantom pain is well understood. Like if you have a hearing problem, you, know, you can get tinnitus, right? Because your brain, if you stop hearing certain frequencies, you can get tinnitus because your brain still wants to hear those frequencies, so it produces them themselves, right? Or you could say there's a tiny space alien uh, spaceship trapped in my ear that's invisible to science that's producing this sound as the byproduct of its quantum drive, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is the most likely uh, explanation, and uh, that's probably the one you'd want to go with. That's interesting. I've had tinnitus for as long as I can remember, and that's, uh, I never really knew what... Oh, do you know the cause? No, no, I didn't know. If what you said was true about uh, a, your brain or whatever, your ear not being able to, is it a problem with the inner ear? Or is it a neurological thing? My know. understanding, like I'm just going through a bit of an ear thing and it's not bad or anything, but my understanding is that um, it may be, and you should probably go get your hearing tested. Uh, it's not a bad thing to do, depending on your age. But if you've got tinnitus, you can go and um, 
you can uh, find out. And my understanding is it's not a problem with the nerve endings. It's a problem within the brain. The brain's expecting a certain sound, and if it doesn't get it from the ears, it starts producing it itself. You can, just by the by, if you're interested, you can go on YouTube and you can look at uh, tinnitus sounds and you can put them on. Sometimes the white noise can help diminish the tinnitus or whatever. So, Yeah, I've always had something on to go to sleep. I can't with, without it in the silence, really. You get Is it like a mosquito wine kind of thing? It's like, it, it's not that high is the thing. It's kind of like, you know, it's high, but mid-range amongst high, if that makes any sense. It's, it's kind of low. Yeah, yeah. From what I, I've heard of. Well, you, yeah, you might be able, you might, you might have, it's possible, right? You might, you can find out if you get a hearing test, if you have an efficiency somewhere and your brain might be producing it. And if you feed it with uh, a sequence uh, of sounds that's where your sound may be a bit spotty, uh, it can diminish it. As far as I understand it, I have tried it once or twice and it seems to help a bit. So. Interesting. All right. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much for the call. I'm not going to. Stretch this one out too much, although please call back uh, in. Uh, I love uh, the topic, Justin. So, you know, mull this over and come back. I love the abstract stuff. It's it's where my particular meat and drink happens to be laid out in my mind and heart. So please feel free to call back in. But as I said, I was up pretty late with the Nazi yelling in the room. So um, <laughs> it's not tinnitus. It's German. And uh, so, um, so thanks very much, everyone, for calling in. Always a great, great pleasure to have these conversations with Yowl. And um, please don't forget, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Donate, 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 please, please, please. At freedomainradio.com slash donate. And uh, use our affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon, fdrpodcast.com. Last but not least. And, you know, if you're on the video site, please like, subscribe, and share. We are close to 500,000 subscribers. And what, what that means to me is any video that gets less than 500,000 views, I'm going to find out where you live and ask why you didn't watch it. Just so you know, in case you get that 3 a.m. knock. It probably will be gravel on the window, followed by a kind of Middle Eastern keening. Anyway, I'm still working on how best to introduce myself to listeners on a personal basis. But thanks, everyone, so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. I'll talk to you soon.